Hello, everyone. I swapped roles for my first podcast, where Carrie Ad Lloyd interviewed me about my life and my family. And I did it to mark the publication of the paperback of my book, Every Family Has a Story. And I'd love you to go and find it. But in this book, I worked with eight different families and they were multi-generation families. I'm looking at the whole family system. And we explore and analyze the relationships that have the power to touch us, to support us, and of course, hurt us most and where we make our deepest mistakes. Where we love most, we hate most are those within our family. I also share in the book my 12 touchstones for family well-being, which helps us communicate effectively, set boundaries, fight productively, and create the family we hope for. So you can get your copy of Every Family Has a Story online or from your favourite bookshop. And I would love it if you went and bought a copy. Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. Well, I'm very excited to be talking to the incredible Julia Samuel on her own podcast, which feels like I've stolen your chair <laughs> and made you go and sit in the different chair uh, in the room. Uh, Therapy Works. It's such an honor to talk to you. Um, I have been a huge fan of your work for a long time now, actually, very long time. Um, yeah. We met yeah, 2017. God, yeah, that's, that's a while ago. I first discovered you with your writing about grief, obviously, because that, that was my wheelhouse as well. <laughs> um, but you have moved on now to talk. It seems like such, such broader topics. Um, and especially in this new book, Every Family Has a Story, which is not new, but coming out in paperback, where you're talking much more about generational losses and living losses is I love your phrase that you use because I think that's such a helpful way for people to under understand it in their head um but how are you today I'm going to start with that Julia how are you today <laughs> I feel Aww, I love seeing you, you so that is a joy being interviewed is not my happy place <laughs> <laughs> so I, I am actually also curious and a bit excited to find yeah. out what the hell I'm going to say because I haven't yeah. I, I don't know well I think people know you as this incredible psychotherapist that's written all these books and you seem very calm and very competent you know when you're talking about these things I always think you are like a, a port in a storm it seems like oh yes we can Julia will know what to do <laughs> or say about this crazy chaos situation <laughs> and I found it interesting in the book that you talk about um the role of a supervisor that a therapist has which I think can be really interesting if people don't know a lot about therapy that even the therapist has someone that they go to so I thought it'd be again it, it's interesting to see the therapist as a whole human isn't it rather than the answer of all things so what what have your life challenges been I know it's a massive question so we can narrow it down but do you feel like there's oh yes that's been the thing recurrent in my life that I've come back to again and again I think all through your life you I <laughs> I can talk about I I face challenges and different challenges I think the most pivotal challenge that I faced that influenced me to be where I am now is that, and I feel, you know, protective as I say this and, and a bit sad, you know, that my mum was an alcoholic. She's died now. So I would never have talked about it while she was alive because it's too shaming. But, um, she was an alcoholic all through my, my sibling's childhood. And just to say, mm. this is my version of it and not my sibling's version. 
And it's so weird that I'm crying because I never fucking cry. <laughs> That's what I do, Julia. That's what I do. What was normal for me as a child, I discovered early on as an adult, wasn't necessarily that normal. And so my work and my challenge to begin with was to recognize that being a child of an alcoholic meant that I had a lot of responses mm -hmm. that were fear-based or unpredictability-based. Unpredictability but also mm -hmm. I am an addict. I'm very addictive. And so I, um, I first kind of fully took it on board. I think when she went into her kind of second or third treatment center, um, when I was about 23, I went to AA uh, or 24. And for that first year in AA, um, I'll never forget, I wow. never said a word, not one single word, but I listened. And I had no idea people could talk wow. about how they felt. It was a completely new language to me. So all I knew was how to kind of mm. put on a good show. You know, I'm very good socially. I can chat to anybody and fake it. But I had no idea that I didn't know what feelings were. Although I had a lot of them, mm. I couldn't have named them. And... I remember the first time I spoke, I honestly thought my yeah. heart was going to stop. I was so frightened. But then when I spoke, I realized the power of naming mm. what is going on and being heard and it not being messed with. And it, it's a more kind of less straightforward fit. But in the end, that led me to train to be a therapist well thank you for being so honest about your emotions because I know that as from someone who is normally the interviewer it isn't easy to then go oh by the way this is what I've dealt with <laughs> because it, it feels very vulnerable and also you get into this position of of people thinking oh you're fine you know everything you're the one who sits in that chair and obviously we're all humans so thank you I think the thing that makes <laughs> that I feel sad mm. is that I really love my mum and you know, she's died, but I I don't want to kind of stereotype her yeah. as this terrible woman. She and both my parents were the product of their stories and their upbringing. And her alcoholism was the best that she could do, given what she mm. knew and who she was. And I genuinely have no hard feelings for her about that at all. You know, I really love her. And she was a nightmare as well, as I can be as a parent. I mean, mm. she was fucking terrible at times. I don't want to kind of give out that she was this no, wicked yeah. woman. I think she was really a product of her own experience. And so the power of that for me now is to really recognise that if she hadn't been I have got the life I've got because of the difficulty I, that I experienced with her. And I love my job. I love these conversations. I love having done this work. And so I don't feel like a victim. I don't feel any, I, I feel like it's led me to, and I don't think, you know, I hate that idea of, bad things yeah. happen and you turn it no, into good. No. I'm not saying it like that, but I'm just saying that I use what happened to me and it's really fucking worked for me. So I am grateful. I think particularly with that parent-child relationship, it's, it's very hard because I think we all know what we do when someone's telling a story about a parent that we go, oh, like internally, without meaning to, you, someone will tell you something about a parent. You're like, oh, that doesn't sound very good. Or, oh, wow, they sound brilliant. And and actually, we all know that that relationship and, and humans in general, but particularly that parent-child relationship is so complicated. I've really experienced this of like, people either think that my dad and me were like this absolute perfect, um, you know, I was a daddy's girl. That's why I do this podcast, but it's death. And then when I say, oh, we didn't have a very good relationship, it's very complicated. Actually, there's a really big gray area in the middle where someone can be the best parent they can be, which also is sometimes, like you said, not great. And sometimes the, the best they could do. And you appreciate that as a person, but there's also feelings and effects of that. I think it's whenever we try to reduce it to something, 
we take away from it. And as you said, you, you loved her so much and you appreciate everything she did give to you and what she could give to you. But yet there was this other side that was very painful and you had to process. And I think that's also what you're referring to is like you had a strength which enabled you to go to AA at such a young age. I mean, 23 is, is very young to face that and not, and not do the lessons you've learned, you know, not follow, as you talk about in your book, that, that transgenerational pattern. Was there a big fear for you that it would just carry on, especially with terms of addiction? I stopped drinking when I was 26. I, 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 I've been sober. I'm 63, so whatever the math is. I made a decision. I remember sitting at my desk and I always did my homework. You know, I was always a worker and that is mm. how I survived the chaos. And so I've always like finished my homework on time. I'm always like, I'm a kind of, I see myself yeah. as this cart horse that really kind of keeps <laughs> on plowing and tries to kind of get everything in order. And I really remember sitting in my little school uniform, um, sitting at my desk thinking, I am going to do it differently. And that was while I was smoking. So I started smoking wow, when Julia, I was seven. I thought I was bad at 14. <laughs> no, seven. No. I, I went out every morning and smoked in the garden shed before I went to school, age oh seven my on. God. And one morning, my dad. Oh, different times, guys. Different times. <laughs> one morning, and one morning, my dad kind of watched me, and he thought, "Where's where she going into the garden shed?" And then he saw me sitting on the grass roller thing, oh my God. puffing away. And then I had to write a hundred lines. I promise I will never smoke again, which I wrote, and went and hid in the park before I went to school wow. and had a cigarette. So mm. I was an addict early, but also I made some kind of protective decision that has really, I think, saved me that I didn't mm. want the chaos. I wanted to do it differently. And of course, that led me to marry very young. Mm. I married at 20. So I kind of did everything to try and be this version of myself that didn't feel out of control and scared. But it took a lot of, that mm. was the external, and it took a lot of internal work to get the two to be aligned. And of course, I go off the rails now and again as well. <laughs> I don't wrestle with my own shame because I, I don't feel ashamed of that. I feel, I do feel that I could morph that addiction mm. into something else mm. very easily. So it's always there. So I'm not frightened of drinking or taking drugs, but... With me, the kind of shame is around uh, ambivalence about my public mm. face, as it were, like wanting attention and feeling ashamed that I want attention, that there's something wrong with me, that I shouldn't want attention, wanting to do the work because I really like doing the work and like the attention and like the connection but there's a lot of shame that comes with that. And mm. I think that's very linked. I actually have never thought that through until I said it now. I, that, I think it, that is the same pathway as an addictive pathway of shame, isn't it? So I think you do, like you said, you you have that awareness of like, okay, well, I'm shifting it onto something because it, it could be anything. It could be alcohol, could be, it's just the thing that you obsess about, isn't it? But yes, that that need for attention, that shaming, I think also, I don't know if you feel this, if it's slightly this generational thing of past generations asking for attention was, was very shaming. Like if you said, I need help or I want you to look at me, it was really like, who do you think you are? Like the arrogance that came with mm -hmm. it. And I think we are moving past that, but I definitely feel that inherited. How dare I ask for anyone's attention? Do you think that your parents had that as well of like, it's Vulgar in a way. 100%. Definitely. I mean, your yeah. children should be seen and not heard. But also, those that shout the loudest oh. get the least, some, some awful kind of expression like that. Oh, God. Yeah. I was one of five children, and we were five children um, under the age of four because wow. I'm a twin and I've got twin sisters. Yeah. So there was a lot of vying for attention. There's sibling rivalry, attention that's kind of in me that that gets played out. But I tell you, 
and maybe this sounds arrogant. And no, so no do, don't be ashamed. <laughs> well, what I don't have and what has really helped me is I don't mm. have imposter syndrome. I don't feel at all mm. fake. I feel like a proper therapist. I feel like I know what I'm doing. I like what I'm doing. I feel confident as a therapist. Um, that will always be the thing I'll go back to is forming important relationships with my clients. And then what I learn from that, I take out into the world with the podcasts or the books. But that feels 100%. Have you always real. felt like that? Have you always felt like that? Or did you, yeah, even when you started, you thought, I'm, I'm good at this? No, I didn't. I felt scared. And, um, you know, all the exams I had to do in the learning, I felt I didn't know enough, but mm. I never felt yeah. fake, which is different. So I, and I still make mistakes now and I have supervision now and I have bits of shame where I think I've got it wrong. That's always going to be present. I'm always going to make mistakes and not want to make mistakes and go on learning and growing, hopefully. But I think that is slightly different than feeling that I'm an imposter. But, you know, I, I saw written the other day, like everybody says everyone feels trauma. I don't think everybody experiences trauma. But I also, I saw written, everybody has imposter mm. syndrome. I don't think that's true. I hope not. I hope some people are out there feeling like, they, like you, like they, this is where I'm meant to be. I think that's great. I don't think it sounds arrogant at all, actually, because it's, because I think, again, it's, it's the, the complexity of these issues. When we try and say, you have imposter syndrome, you don't. It, it, I think sometimes you... Yeah, and sometimes you, you can label. feel impostery, but then you learn a bit more and you understand it. I still get it, but only because I'm constantly moving what I'm doing, so, which I think, yeah. So I'm always shifting what I'm doing and then I'm always in a new room and I'm figuring it out. I wondered, and I've had this said to me in therapy, if you felt like this, if there's something about the shame of attention that is um, soothed by knowing that you're helping. So because you're a therapist... And it's like the givingness nature of that soothes that like, well, I am getting attention, but it's, it's for a good cause. <laughs> no, I think there's something really in that. And, I, and I, I have actually, I think at the heart, you know, the heart of most, you could never say all people in the helping professions is the reverse, that in helping others, you're helping mm. yourself and that we're all walking wounded. And there is absolutely no question in my mind, that me um, responding to other people's needs and being needed meets a very big need in mm. me. Um, and some of it is for attention. Some of it is being needed. I think the greater part of it is about connection, yeah. like feeling properly connected, connected mm. in a kind of deep, meaningful way with another person, which I think is partly from being a twin mm. and being wired as a twin. But there is no question that unconsciously, so obviously I didn't do any of this kind of yeah. knowingly, um, I chose to go into a profession, which from the background I came from was not a normal yeah. profession to go into. And I think a lot of it was to be was to be needed, yeah. I don't believe in altruism. I don't mean that in a horrible way, but I think when we give to others, we always get more than mm. we give. Yeah, and I think that's reasonable <laughs> it's a good reminder to people it's not just like you don't just do it for the sake of it like obviously sometimes there's those moments but also you can benefit so do it more again it's subtle and it's unconscious it's not a, again it's not like a, a criticism of a person but it's just that thing of I definitely had that the what I do with the grief cast so it's very I get lots of messages and it's very helpful and partly that sort of soothes my oh you're just doing this so you can talk. <laughs> it's like, yes, but I'd be very helpful. So it's a, a loud, this is a loud attention, which um, says a lot about my childhood. But, but the thing I'd like to, which I can say more easily in relation to other people than I can myself, is that thing of being too much, mm. like you're too much or you're not allowed this yep. much. You're only allowed this much tension, this much time, this much neediness, this much notion. I fucking hate mm. that. I think the minute we can give ourselves permission to be all of ourselves, all of the messy, yeah. chaotic, demanding, fantastic, liberating, sexy, powerful, scared, 
all of the emotions, you know, not to waterboard everybody <laughs> in the world with them, but but within the privacy of our home, in the privacy of our intimate relationships yeah. where we feel safe, then actually, paradoxically, we're released to feel much calmer. Mm. But when we constantly feel that we have this kind of control button that is sitting in our head saying, no, you can't have that. You can only say this. You can't express that. That's too needy. That's too much. The, the throttling of ourselves, I think, does a lot more harm. Mm, I'm sure there's a lot of people, myself included, who can relate to that. And it's very hard to undo the external that you learn as a person, if you are very emotional you, or you're dramatic or any of these things that apply as negatives. I just say emotional. Yeah. You're a person. Yeah. We're, we have emotions. I know. I just wanted to ask you, <laughs> how have you, because especially in the book, what's so fascinating when you talk about these challenges that, that live within three tiers of a family, which I think is such an exciting new world that we live in that we we can acknowledge while you inherit things without a blame. I think we used to live in the time of like, well, it's their, it's their fault that we're fucked up. <laughs> and now we can say, mm. well, no, like they did the best they could and now I'm doing. How have you worked to not pass on the challenges that you inherited to your children? You've had your first child very young and then you've moved into therapy. Like how, how do we not fuck up the next lot? My mum always says to me, well, you're going to fuck them up. You just don't know how. <laughs> so I'm like, is there a way? I think your mum's yes. right. She says, it's never what you think. It's not the way you think you're going to fuck them up. It's just a different way. But is there something you've sort of consciously thought, okay, I'm going to try and do this? So I have definitely made masses of mistakes and have things that I feel really quite deep regret and guilt about. And you know that my two daughters are therapists yes. who will be commenting on this conversation. Oh so they're going to be listening. But, but there, were, there were, so I made lots of unconscious mistakes mm. just because that was what was familiar of carelessness, thoughtlessness, um, being dismissive and insensitive and all, all sorts of just habitual mm. things that I did. And often through lack of time and attention, I think is what I really um, didn't do. What I very consciously did do in a very imperfect way was not be drunk mm. or an, a drug addict. Um, so that was very important that I was sober. And I... Um, I remember when I was training as a therapist, coming home one evening and seeing the sunset as I was walking in the door and going up to my children's bedrooms to read them stories. And that was a moment that I... I mean, it makes me sort of cry when I realised that I was so lucky to have them. They weren't just work. Mm. They weren't just a chore to get done. But that I, that I could really feel in my body how much I loved mm. them. And I had had that. But that this the sort of sunset and then reading them stories in their bedrooms and really feeling it fully. Um, and then using that experience to build on, to be able to love them in the moment. Um, was something that I consciously did and failed at, but also tried to do. It's so hard. It's such a hard job. I mean, job's not the right word. As you said, it's not a job, but it is such a hard job being a parent. It's so difficult. And it's not to say it's ever if people aren't parents, it doesn't mean that you're missing out on this uh, a human experience that you must have. It isn't. But if you do make that choice or you're able to make that choice, it's fucking hard. <laughs> and of course, once you do become a parent, you can then look at that previous generation and a lot of stuff that you, I think, judged harshly suddenly becomes like, oh, yeah. What you said about your mum earlier, which I thought was so lovely, that she did the best she could. I think that's sort of, from my experience, is that that does deepen as you get older. The things that I was furious at my dad for, now I'm a parent. And I'm also, as much as he was self-employed, running my own business at home, exactly like he did, which I hated as a child, which I'm now inflicting on my children. Um, so interesting so that I mean, we repeat. Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely repeating it. That's a beautiful moment you're describing to 
I think to be present is what you're talking about, which I think in addiction yeah. and chaotic families, that's what's lacking is a presence. I don't know if, if that's true for you. I think that's a really good word. Yeah, I think I recognized the being mm. of loving, mm. not the doing of loving. And I think the being is harder. And for me, the being wasn't so much accepting you who you are, but allowing myself to have the joy mm. and the gratitude of having these children to love. And that I wanted intentionally to love them and kind of love them into being, which I really want, which I hadn't consciously known I wanted to do. I keep on crying. It's awful. I hate it. It's beautiful. That's why you're crying, because it's beautiful to express that. And to be able, I suppose now your children are much older. Even though you and parents yeah, themselves, yeah, you're in that. You're in a. You're obviously, we're in very different stages. My children are like under ten, um, and you're in that stage where you can. Hopefully, you did make mistakes, but they still love you. <laughs> You've like yeah. worked through that. Just based on what happens in the book, were you able to have those conversations with your mother that you are now much? You know, the relationship you have with your daughters is so expressive, and you guys talk about so much. Did you ever get to that with your mum, or was it just too difficult? I tried. I tried many times and she just wasn't able to. She would change the conversation. She was the worst listener in the universe. <laughs> I mean, I think she did at one point apologize, but she never stopped drinking. Well, she was drinking until the day she died. I God. mean, till well, she had she was ill for like the last six months. She lived till she was 90. I mean, this is the problem with doctors saying you shouldn't do something. <laughs> She smoked. People then she the took wrong. no exercise. Oh she had no teeth and ate masses of chocolate and sweet things and drank. Wow. And she lived until she was 90 but, and, and had good memory. Wow. I mean, she wasn't that fit by the end, but yeah, there's no justice. There's no, and I, I think this is so important. <laughs> I, obviously, it's important to remember these good things you should do, but I always sort of relish telling people that my dad died of pancreatic cancer whilst training for an Ironman. Because I just think sometimes you have to remember that life is really fucking mad and that random. random. And you, this idea that, oh, if I don't do this, I'll be healthy and I'm protected, it can cause more pain. I mean, he was 44, he was so fit and healthy. And they actually said if he'd been less healthy, he would have had longer because it just spread around his body so quickly because he was so healthy. So, fast. so it's like your mum living through all that time and, and, you know, there's not, there isn't, yeah, there isn't justice. And that is really hard. Right lesson it's so random mm. so random but it's important i think yeah i mean i think we have this very false belief which is very much curated through instagram and tiktok you know if you take your exercise don't eat processed food <laughs> yeah um sleep eight hours a night do your meditation and have connection then you're going to be guaranteed a long and healthy life and that is just not no. true you're you're improving your odds yep. and you'll probably f have less diseases because you know the research shows that but nothing is for no. sure we don't have control it's random <laughs> bad things happen to good people yeah. good things happen to bad people yeah. i think it's such a human wrestle is that you said this the control and i think when you have addiction in your family it's kind of heightened that level of control but i think actually everyone's fighting that battle it's almost like addictive people wear it more loudly in a way of like I can't I'm trying to control this chaos whereas other people act fine I'm not saying we should everyone should go out and be addicted but I feel like addicted people are like the canary in the mine shaft being like actually this is chaos and I can't deal with it and we treat them slightly as like the problem but it's it's almost like yeah fair play like like especially when you're talking about your mother's generation like what they'd been through and what they'd seen like who wouldn't need something to numb those feelings she was so bored, my mum. And that's what led to, well, she was, the, my grandmother was, a, was an alcoholic. My grandmother died of um, cirrhosis of the liver um, in her, I think, 60s, I think a couple of months before my uh, mum got married. Um, and her twin sister was an addict. But, you know, my grandmother lived with someone who survived the First mm. World War and had all that trauma. My mum and dad um, were in the Second World War. 
and had that trauma. And they all had multiple very significant losses. So it's no accident that I ended up working in the area of, of grief. Mm. But I think to get back to what you're talking about is that we kind of want this sense of agency and control. And I think paradoxically, the reverse is true, is that when we can liberate ourselves to let ourselves fully have all of these feelings and not try and kind of nail them down and have a kind of fight to to win, then we have much more joy. Mm. <laughs> it's a shit lesson, but it's a, once you can, if you can get there, like if you get through the end, you're like, oh, this is better. But yeah, the process is hard. When you're... Says it says the woman who is more habitual than you could ever yeah. shake a stick at. I'm not even going to give you the minutiae because it is too embarrassing. <laughs> but I do lots of things on the same day every single day of the week, and that is one which my my daughters will probably talk about. That that is my way of keeping yeah. safe is habits, lots and lots of habits. I think so. Having said, everyone should let go. I am not fucking <laughs> well, letting go. Well, I think it's letting go and it's letting go. I'm also a habitual person, and yeah. I do feel like because I feel quite internally chaotic and I grew up quite chaotic, that's an anchor for me that that makes me feel a bit calmer. And I always say, well, you know, either I'm really uptight or I'd be taking heroin and drinking. So this is the mug I have every morning and no one's allowed to use that mug. Exactly. I'm more or less exactly the same in different versions. Yeah. When your mum wouldn't talk about it, and obviously you say you tried, which I think, and you mentioned a family in the book with a similar situation where they, an older lady who, of certain generation, the yes, family. and they did try to speak to her. And I found that heartbreaking. Yeah. How did you process that? How would you advise someone to process that? Because I think some people don't even get to the, the bravery to have the conversation. So their life is spent thinking, gosh, what if I was brave enough to say it? But if you are brave enough to say to someone, this was shit, and they don't talk about it, I think, God, where where do you go from that point when you've been brave, but they didn't follow up on being part of the connectedness? I think you have to grieve what you wanted to mm. have happened, but also recognise that you don't have regrets, that you had a go. Yes, that's true. I mean, I to be honest, I did not have high expectations. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't go in there thinking... This is going to change everything. Mum is going to really own this. and So I had low expectations. Um and I think that helps, to be honest, being realistic about what you can ask for. I think sometimes small conversations and small wins are better than one big kind of hope of a curative conversation. That this is going to make everything better. Yeah. Um, and I did have some small wins. And one of the um, things I did with my mum was uh, I, when she said goodbye, I picked her arms up. And I put them around me and I looked her in the eye and I said, I love you, mum. And she looked at me completely frozen. And then I said, you can say it back to me. (laughs) (laughs) And so I made her say, Mm. I love you, darling. And she said, I love you, darling. And then we had a hug and then we laughed and it was actually a very lovely moment. Yeah, wow. And that was a big win. And very straightforward. And we both really liked it. And I remember that. I go back to that quite often in my memory. That's huge. That's really massive that you you were stable and confident enough to say, I know how much you cannot express this. I'm going to literally show you, like mimic it. and, And then this is what it looks like. This is what closeness looks like. And then to be able to laugh about it, I think is just the best because that's so human. That's so human. And I did it a number of times. I must have done it like, I don't know, half a dozen times. And so in the end, she was just like, she knew what she was doing. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but that's so beautiful. It was in a way, it like was. you said, there was... She hadn't no, learned. She, hadn't learned. she didn't know. It wasn't in She her. didn't have a script and you gave her a script. No. And like lots of people have fears of going on stage and not knowing what they're going to say. And I think we forget sometimes that we we actually have that in life all the time. There's emotional experiences or with grief or trauma that we 
we don't know because we don't have a script or our parents didn't show us what this looks like. So for you to very lovingly be like, I'm not shaming you. I'm not judging you. I'm not like, you didn't love me. You're just like, this is what it looks like. You put your arms around, you say, I love you. Yeah. And I knew that underneath it all, she yeah. did. She really did. She just didn't know how. She didn't know how to say it. She didn't know how to show it. But she definitely did. So that was really lovely. It's nice being able to tell you. I've never said that story oh. out loud, I don't think. I'm so glad you did because it's, nice. it's beautiful. And I think yeah. it also reminds us that it doesn't have to be complicated to, to connect to someone. Like you said, the small wins are really important. And I think you said this to me once about my dad as well, of like, they can be terrible parents, but if you fundamentally somehow know they love you, it makes things a lot easier. <laughs> like, and I think that's very interesting you talk about that in the book as well in terms of adopted families as well having that ability to be able to know a family's pattern so that I could look at his parents and I could understand my dad a lot more and like you said you could look at your mum and understand and you know her generational the cultural all these things it's really important really helpful I suppose to be able to have that's a privilege a, I really appreciate you bringing in the book and having read the book in the way that you have. I yeah, really that's appreciate brilliant. I that. loved it. <laughs> yeah, I do think the transgenerational pattern is a really important lens, mm. um, which is obviously why I wrote the book. And that was where the kicking off point for me of writing the book was looking at my own family mm. and looking at the my own kind of grandparents, great-grandparents. I think... What the book shows is that, you know, patterns of behaviours get passed down both epigenetically, so through the kind of womb, not inevitably, but can be both the good and mm. the bad, the, the capacity to love and all of those good things get passed down and also behaviours and trauma, but also they get passed down with behaviours of how we manage complexity and trauma. So it's both, it's sort of genetics and behavior. I loved the opportunity to explore that in the book for myself um, as a product of parents who were traumatized and in all the different families that I work with, three and four and five generations. It was very healing for mm. me and it gave me to go to the point of my challenge and my mum being an addict, it gave me a lot more compassion for both of my parents. Mm because I'd really kind of understood it from a much broader perspective that was really helpful and curative. But I think it's really helpful and positive and hope, hopeful. I think we can allow hopeful to, to, to say like you can reach a point of compassion with your parents. And I think it's a spectrum as, we, as everything is. But when you can zoom out and go, oh, they didn't ask for their parents and they didn't ask for their parents. And, you know, I think yeah. the, the goal, isn't it, to try and be a little bit less fucked up than the last lot. <laughs> Exactly. It's sort of what you can hope for. One of the kind of insights I got from the book is the story that you tell yourself about yourself mm. is the person you become. So that when you, as you've just beautifully done there, expand your story mm. from, you know, too simplistic, all is good or too simplistic, all is bad, but actually have a nuanced, fuller, in this case, multi-generation story then you have a really rich story from which you can grow and thrive and make your own decisions about how you're going to live your life and what's going to give it meaning and purpose and connection and hopefully have some fun. A little bit of laughter in there is, is always a good thing. I don't think we have enough fun. No. I, I'm actually quite good at fun. But, yeah. <laughs> I can tell. I can tell, Julia, there's a glint in your eye. I can tell. Yeah. Good, good party girl. <laughs> I was going to ask you finally to wrap up if you had one piece of advice that you wish every every person could sort of hold in their heart, but is there anything else that you think, because obviously we, and you say this in the book, you know, therapy can be a real privilege and not everyone can access it or not everyone, even if they have the money, they might not feel ready to emotionally. It, it's affected by so many things. Is there anything if somebody that you think, gosh, I wish people could just know that in their hearts when they're struggling in, a, in life? That's quite it's a huge. Question. I'm sorry. <laughs> at the you know, at the end, for all of us, the thing that matters most is is mm. love, and love is not a soft skill. Love is hard to mm. do. It's hard to receive. It's hard to give. It's hard to know when to step back. It's hard to know when to jump in. It's hard to know when to let go. 
But I think on the line of about control and addiction, when you can give yourself permission and the capacity to fully, like that moment, my sunset moment, going into my children's bedrooms, to really let yourself in the being of loving and in the being of receiving love, then a lot of other things will follow. Mm. It was a really difficult question. And yet, incredibly, of course, you answered it perfectly, Julia Samuel. So congratulations. <laughs> the blubbing therapist, this session is going to oh. be cool. For fuck's <laughs> sake. I'm good. That's what you want to see. Because otherwise you think your therapist is this like absolute perfect human that's got it all nailed. And you think, how comes I'm this mess in front of them? I think it's vulnerability as you know, is a really good thing. And people will really, really appreciate that you have been vulnerable today. Thank you. Thank you so much for talking to me. Do you know, I did love this oh, conversation with Carriad. I really so did. Good. I really did. You are brilliant. Oh God, thank you. And I really, really appreciate it. And for those that don't know, they need to find Carriad's book, which we will put into the oh, show. Oh, thank you. Do you want to say the title it's of your book? It's called You Are Not Alone, and it's about grief, but it's cheerier than it sounds, is what I always say to people. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderful thank book. Thank you. So thank you, Carriad. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hi, Sophie. Hello. This feels weird. We don't have mum to give us our little intro. I know, it's a different setup. <laughs> um, so we have both listened to mum's interview with Cariad. Mm. And I thought we could start off by talking about all the ways mum effed us up. No. <laughs> um, yeah. Here we go. Here we go. No, I am obviously kidding. Actually, I was really, really touched by this interview because although mum is quite a big crier, like she'll cry at a documentary, she's not a very big public crier. And I was sort of really touched by the love that she showed and the vulnerability that she showed and, and a little bit surprised too, to be honest. Yes, that's my first comment. Surprised that she cried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in the same reason, in that most certainly, like, I've seen her cry. We've had emotional conversations. A lot. In, a lot. That's not that it's, that it's odd for her to cry. But it was surprising for me that she was, went to that vulnerable place on her podcast and also talking about her mum, uh, yeah. what we call the, the GMA, which I, I, I wouldn't have, if you would say, would that make your mum cry talking that publicly? I would be I wouldn't have guessed that. So that was really touching. And I hadn't heard that story of, I don't know if you heard about the sunset moment of going upstairs to see us and feeling her having that moment of wanting to love us and be with us and that we're not just work. And that was emotional. And I recognise it for myself too, as a parent of like, sometimes my children just feel like work. I hadn't heard that story before. And thinking about that story and also mum's kind of openness and emotionalness, I think it, it really just has to do with love. <laughs> I think mm. that when it, something sort of touches that part of you inside that's really about the things that are most important to you, that you love the most, mm. sometimes that can almost feel like unbearable in a good way. Like I feel too much love and it kind of comes out as mm. tears, or at least I have had those moments um and I've also had those moments where my children definitely just feel like work and then you have these little odd moments that I think you sort of almost capture like a camera reel like last mm. weekend it was really sunny and my husband and I and our children we went to like this little farm shop and we went for a walk which is really inverted commas because our children are three and one and a half and like we went 500 yards down like a mud track but it was just like sort of seeing them running off into the distance mm. and you have these moments where like you're like oh 
<sighs> I yeah, think it's like your heart is overflowing, isn't it? It's yeah. like, oh, I love them so much. Being consciously aware of that doesn't happen probably as much as it, it should. Have you found becoming a parent made you feel more compassionate towards mum? I think that it definitely made me recognise how difficult being a parent is. I think with mum and I specifically, if this isn't too much personal information, mum and I had quite a tempestuous phase when I was like in my late teens, early 20s. And I think through that, through the conversations that we had then, I think I already had quite a lot of compassion for her as a parent because we'd we'd talked about it quite a lot. Mm. You'd have done that reckoning already. done, Done that reckoning. And also because I was nearly 36 when I had my first child I I sort of also was a bit older so I think that I sort of really understood that we all are human and I'd kind of done that part how about you I don't know that it made me feel more compassionate I don't know that that wasn't like a big battle for me I think it made me understand it better like I understood better the kind of like what some of the challenges felt like or the push and the pull, or finding myself doing and feeling similar things. But I think it, it brings up the conversation again in a way, I think probably I found, is that like, there's like teenagerdom, isn't there? And sort of launching into adulthood, which is quite a sort of intense parental moment where you're having to engage with that. And then you're in your 20s, and at least for me, it was more peers, like my friendships and relationships mm. were like the primary. And then when you have children, for me, it was like, oh, I'm suddenly thinking lots about my parents again or my yes. childhood again, <laughs> or like all this stuff is coming up again, which actually I haven't really necessarily done a lot of thought or thinking or feeling maybe specifically, maybe I've done thinking, but not a lot of like feelings that were coming up. So it definitely was like a moment of another, another reckoning for me about those kind of questions. Often it may be in relation to myself, but obviously it involves looking back. And I think one of the other things I thought when I was hearing mum talk is I think maybe unlike some people, we know quite a lot of mum's story. Like people mm-hmm. often don't know the sort of ups and downs. Like most, there wasn't really any like information about her journey of change, as it were, that it kind of a lot of it was that was new. And I was thinking how definitely I, one of the things I learned from mum and dad was like well-being takes work and relationships take work. It's it's something that they really worked hard on all their lives, and I think that's something that I've inherited that awareness. Yes, and something I think we both are grateful for. Mm. And like you said, actually, that was something I noticed as well, that maybe we hadn't heard every story before, but like certainly the narrative arc of mum's life, something that is very familiar to us. And that also made me think about the importance of stories in families and how helpful it's been for us to know that about her know that that is where she has come from and informed like who she is as a person and I think sometimes we are afraid as parents to give our children too much information about us that it's somehow like too big or too scary or is going to be damaging in some way and of course we need to think about what's age appropriate and how we talk about our experiences as parents. But I think in general, it's helpful for your children to know your story as well in a, like I said, age appropriate way, because I think it can help them make sense of themselves too. You know, we all pick up on the emotion and the atmosphere and the absences, right? All the things that don't make sense, even if we can't name them. If it's a bit like the way secrets can shape things they they can be secrets by omission you know growing up in a family not understanding why that's so hard or why so and so so angry or why having that story really does help um i think children make sense of their world as children and then again as adults right but okay that's what i inherited it's the whole way that we make sense of things and because when children don't have information it's not like they just leave it they just fill in the gaps themselves with their own imagination and make sense of it in a way that is probably going to be worse or definitely a lot less accurate than, than the reality. And I think 
that's true for all mm. sorts of things. Um, and often take it on themselves, right? Somehow yeah. there's something wrong with them. My only last thought, which was not about mum at all, it was just kind of like a therapy point, I guess. There was a moment where mum was very like, you should just be able to be and you should just be able to feel and like just be everything that you are. And like, and I, I fully, I do, I fully embrace that sentiment of like, we're giving ourselves permission to feel and be all the parts of ourselves without feeling shame. And at the same time, I was like, there is a part two to that, which is like how to do that in relationship. Because there is a skill in being all those parts yourself in relationship with other people. It's not firstly that people might have an awful lot of reactions, which is not a bad thing, but you have to negotiate. What if when your needs clash, how do I be all those parts of myself? And that part of myself really upsets that part of yourself. Um, and how do we navigate that? And how do we negotiate that? And that is a, like a really skilled part of how to navigate our world and we've learned old patterns of how to do that like oh I'll just shut that down that's how I'm going to cope with that part of myself I'm going to pretend it's not there and part of the skill is like how can I reclaim that or feel that again or allow that and be robust or have the skill or know how to navigate in the world where people will have reactions where people will respond in different ways um, or where my defenses clash with your defenses or whatever so how do we be everything that we are in the context of reality. <laughs> context of reality and, and, and be willing to negotiate, I guess. Not you'll negotiate, you don't need to negotiate your feelings, but like, can I let myself be all those things? And can I let you be all those things, even though sometimes I really don't like it and vice yeah. versa? I mean, I, I think that's definitely true. But also the thing that I have found now in my relationship that's an incredible thing finding someone who you can be all those things with including like the really shitty bits of yourself and still be loved it doesn't mean that the other person necessarily likes those parts of yourself <laughs> because they're not very likable but I guess that thing of being loved for who you are yeah. even though of course like you say you need to negotiate being in the world mm. but being loved for all of who you are it's probably the most Profound. extraordinary experience you can have really and the most healing experience yes he, that's that's the word healing i think we've failed in not talking about what mum said in the interview but i'm not sure that that's what we we're supposed to be doing well i think our, our final message would just be to mum that we love you so much and we feel lucky to have you as a mum very lucky very grateful Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Therapy Works. If you enjoyed it, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and we will see you next week. Thank you. Bye.